So this chapter, chapter 10, is another interlude. So when you're reading through Revelation, we have seen seals opened, we've seen trumpets blown, and before the seventh trumpet, which then ushers in the seven bowls, we have an interlude. Um, and I know it seems odd, like why would this happen? Why would John do this? This is why would God give John give it to John this way? I, I as I read through the whole book of Revelation, I feel like these are motivational spots, motivational pauses for us to see the weight of everything we saw last week. I mean, didn't last week feel heavy if you were here? You've got locusts coming out of the pits of hell. You've got a 200 million strong army of horses that their the breath their breath kills people, and the snakes on their tails will strike people. Like that's not only is it weird and odd and hard to grasp, it's terrifying. A third of the earth is dead after this happens. Then we get chapter 10. We get this interlude, this pause. This moment that happens, John sees something, God speaks to John, and then we jump back in as we continue on into more of the bowls being poured out. It's kind of odd, but yet I think there's a point to it. I think there's a reason why God does this. So we talk about it being bittersweet because you will see here in a minute that he... That the angel warns John that the Bible, the Word of God, is both honey and it's also bitter. That it's a bittersweet book. It's a bittersweet uh, testament to the story of God that we hold in our hands. That it's very sweet as far as grace and salvation, but it's also very bitter because it exposes our sin and it lets us see that there is a terrifying um, future for those who don't put up their faith in Christ. And so we've got to hold these together in this letter as we read it. So we start, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his leg like p- legs like pillars of fire. Now, this should sound, some of these images should sound familiar to you. Now, remember, when we started Revelation, we saw Jesus' bronze feet and all these things, and they were symbolic of things. They were, they were meant to give us a picture of this moment and Jesus in this moment. We're getting the same kind of picture here of this angel. Now, some would say this is Michael the archangel, um, alluding to Daniel, and I, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but since he's not named, I don't know that I can just grab that wholeheartedly and say this is who it is. What we see is an, an angel comes from heaven. Now, this isn't falling, it's coming down. I think that's key, because fallen angels are what? Demons, thank you. So this isn't a demon, this is an angel who's come down from heaven with a mission, with a message, like angels do, and you get these, this picture of things surrounded, enveloping this angel. Has a cloud wrapped around him, which brings us to the Exodus. It brings us to the wandering 40 years in the desert with the cloud protecting the people of God from the sun, and then the pillar of fire at night to light their way and protect them at night from those who would come to ravage them. So we have pillars of fire on the legs. You've got the protection of the cloud, the protection of the pillars of fire. We'll see in a minute that this angel puts his feet on the land and put one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. So even these pillars of legs can be drawn into the, the bronze feet of Jesus. Like it's, it's about standing for truth, rock solid, unchanging, unmoving, unwavering kind of figure. Then we have the rainbow, which we know is a symbol of the covenant. It's covenant language. The covenant made with Moses. Or, um, yeah, no. Yes, Noah, after the flood, we have, it's been a long day already. When the covenant's made with Noah, the covenant language that we see happen with Abraham, the covenant language made with Moses, then we see Jesus making the new covenant. It's, a, it's given us a picture of covenantal language. 
this rainbow is a picture of God's promises that he's made. And then we get the face like the sun, which shows us the back to um, Moses being on getting the Ten Commandments, where he asks to see God, and God says, you can't handle the truth. One, one person. Dang it. Maybe two. Um, God says, you can't handle my truth, you can't handle the glory, you can't handle my presence, so you hang out in the cleft of a rock, and my shadow will pass you, and then Moses encounters the shadow of the glory of God, and his face shines for days on end. So this angel is compacting a lot of these images that we have from the Old Testament about the glory, the majesty, the promises of God, all in this moment. So this just isn't an angel that shows up and says, Hey, don't be afraid. I got something to tell you. This is an angel who is, is wrapped in the glory and the story of God. And John is witnessing this angel coming down to talk to him, to give him some kind of a message. Okay? Verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So this little scroll open in his hand. Now, it's very interesting to be called the little scroll. Um, I think there's, I believe, that there's great reasons why this is. Almost everyone, every commentator I've ever read would say that this little scroll is the Bible we hold in our hand. It's the Word of God. That that's what this angel has, has a little scroll in his hand. But it's the Word of God. Now, for you and I, that would be like, whoa, what's the little scroll? I mean, this is the Word of God. Like, this is this is not something little. It's what we put our trust in. It's what we read. It's what we glean from. It's what we learn from. It's how we grow is the Word of God. Well, then put it in the, con- the context of the entire book of Revelation. You have the big scroll with seals, and the seals are being opened. In the middle of it, the angel has the little scroll, the Word of God. And we'll see here in a minute, uh, as we continue reading through, that there's a lot of things that God isn't revealing to us. He doesn't show us everything. If you read through the Gospels, that all three Gospels are supposed to give us three years of Jesus' life. We don't get every moment. It's not a day-by-day, you know, diary, blog, whatever you call it, YouTube channel. We don't get every day that he did things. We don't get every miracle that he did. We don't get every word that he said. We don't get all of that. What we have is exactly what God wants us to have, given to us through his inspiration for us to learn from, to grow from, and to know him in a deeper way. So since, I think since it's called the little scroll, the word of God gives us a picture and a window into God and to what he wants for us and how to live, but it's not all of him. It's not everything. And so you're seeing seals broken on this giant scroll, the hand of God, which is the unveiling of the justice, the, uh, the, the judgment on the earth. You're getting this big scroll, and we have the little scroll in his hand of the word of God. But it doesn't diminish what the angel's holding it just means we don't see everything. We're going to see that in a second. And like literally in just the next verse. There's things that God hides from us. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the secret things of God are to be kept secret. We're not going to know everything that God's doing. Which, if I'm honest, frustrates me to no end. That's just how I'm wired. It's how I've always been wired. Um, since I was in fourth grade. And some of you have heard this before, but I'm telling it anyway. Because it just it's a window into how my brain works. I remember learning about General George Armstrong Custer in fourth grade. I remember learning what a hero he was, what a great man who died with his troops were. Like this guy, like I wanted to like join the military, die with my troops. Ah, oh, what a great guy. 
And then I'm a nerd who is working in the library at our grade school. And there's a book on General Custer. And so then I said, I'm going to check this out because I just learned about him from my teacher in three minutes. And I'm going to learn. And I read the book. Like, he was kind of a pompous. I don't like him anymore. <laughs> really don't like him. Um, I still felt a compulsion to die for what I believe. But I read the book. I'm like, what? So for, in fourth grade, I'm feeling I'm lied to by people all around me. And so in my heart became this, like, push for truth. Like, I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to know. I want to know these things. I want to go after it. I want to, I think I'm smart enough to read the books and understand. And that went all the way through. It's why I became a history teacher. It's why in the middle of a history history teaching career, I decided to pursue ministry. The same, I, why isn't the truth of the scriptures being taught in an inductive, accurate, logical way? And I, so I've always had that in me, which drives me crazy because God doesn't give me everything. Like, I want to know. What did you mean by that? I'm not going to reveal that one to you. You're going to have to wait. Uh, I, I don't like that. I want to know. I want to know. I want to be able to cross the T's, dot the I's, draw the connections, make. And he doesn't give that to me. Instead, he gives me just enough so that I can see he's true. I see that I can trust him. I see that I'm saved by grace. And then he calls on me to roll with it in that way. And I'm not. It also takes out my arrogance to think I'm deserved things by God. And instead, I've got to sit back and go, thank you for what you've given me. Thank, for, thank you for the guidance of the Spirit. I am not in control of this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I still get frustrated. But I way less. The trust that he's got. Because then, when sickness comes, the prayer requests we have, all those things. If, I'm, if I feel like I have to approach every one of those with, i got to know why. Why the sickness? Why her? Why him? Why... I'm not, I'm not given that. I'm not given that. And I think if he gave everything to us, our heads would explode. Like if we can't handle the shadow of God, you think you can handle the knowledge of God? No. Your head's going to blow up. It's not going to happen. And so I have to trust. So when we see this angel saying this, coming down with the word of God in his hand, a voice like a lion roaring that the seven thunders, the whole earth, this message is for the planet. Everyone needs to see this and hear this. We take that at face value. This is a message for the world. Then we see this interesting thing happen. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Dang it, Lord. Why didn't you let John write it down? Like, I want to I know what was said. I want to hear what the thunders have said to the whole planet and... He goes, no, no, no. John's, he's right there. He's got his pen. Like, oh, this is big. This is, oh, okay. I won't. And this is, again, God showing his sovereignty to us that we don't, we're not owed anything from him. Every day is a gift. Every moment is a gift. Every relationship, every friendship, it's all a gift from God. And if we can embrace it that way, each and every day, as a gift from God, how much more rich do we see the world around us? Instead of walking through with the guarantee of, I've got tomorrow. It's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that stuff with Jesus. I mean, John's call to all of you during communion was for you to let today be the day that if you've been on the fence, you've been kind of not sure, you've been like, I don't know, I'll deal with that God stuff later. i got to fix some stuff in my life. He was the example in his testimony and a call to you all that you're never going to be fixed. 
You're going to be a mess the rest of your life, but Jesus loves you in spite of the mess. He's going to pour his grace upon you in spite of yourself, and he's going to slowly put the pieces back together or shape you into a new person in his image until you die or he comes home. But what are you waiting for? That's exactly what we're getting here. Like you don't, we don't know everything. I wish he would just let me know. I've watched the movies where you take a pill or you do something and your brain works at 100% capacity. And then you turn into a computer and fall apart or something. You didn't see the latest Scarlett Johansson one like that? Yeah. Like, I, I want my whole brain to work. I want to know it all. That's not what he gives me. Instead, he gives me parts and pieces and lots of trust and lots of faith and lots of truth that he's forming. And so in this moment where he says, seal it up and don't write it down, I want to go, yeah. And then I take a step back and go, thank you, Lord. I don't know if I could have handled the what the seven thunders said. I don't know if I could have handled that. I don't know if my heart could have handled it. So thank you for that. I still want to know that when I have a resurrection body and I can handle the truth, then maybe I, maybe he'll let me know. Until then, I'm going to trust that what he does here is for my good and for his glory. Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what was in it, the sea and what was in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So what's happening here is this angel takes a stand, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. Don't think... Um, the statue of Zeus and the, you know, going into the Mediterranean, the one of the seven wonders of the world. This isn't a literal, this is, this is saying everything this angel is saying, everything's being proclaimed is for the world to hear. It's for the whole world to hear. And it says everything in the sea, everything on the land, everything. There's not going to be any more delay. So again, I, I've shown you that chart of the, the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. That in the sounding of the seventh trumpet, we have the pouring out of the seven bowls. And so this angel is saying, it's coming. And when the angel sounds the seventh trumpet, it's over. It's over. Now, I know that sounds kind of like, what? I don't get it. If we continue to see the pattern in Revelation of the martyrs under the altar, the prayers of the saints, burnt as an offering, thrown out as wrath, we've seen these things happen, that this... This moment, this interlude, this pause, this it's the groanings of all earth and all creation. It's the groanings of us and our pain and our suffering. It's all of the people who have perished as martyrs, everyone that's had cancer and wept tears and seen broken relationship and cried out to God, Why? What are you doing? I feel far from you. I don't know if I can handle this. All of that angst for generations and generations and generations will come to a culminating end when that seventh trumpet is blown. And so this angel is saying, there's not going to be more delay. This is it. This is it. This is when it happens. This is it. And he tells them, all is going to be fulfilled, just as it is announced by servants and prophets. As people, as people have stood in their living rooms, on stages, in churches, workplaces and schools all around the world and professed a truth of Jesus and proclaimed his word, it's all coming to fruition in this moment. In this interlude, 
It's Jesus saying to John, I know it feels like I've been distant. I know it feels like I haven't moved fast enough, but I've got a plan. There's a mystery. I'm sovereign. And when it starts, there's no going back. There's no going back. Verses 8 and 9. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again. Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, we get a couple... I'll keep going. Um, We get a couple things happening here. Number one, think of the image of this. Only... Jesus was able to take the scroll from the hand of God and break the seal. He's the only one. He's the only one that could break the seal. And now we have John being empowered by God himself, Jesus, being empowered by the Lord to take the little scroll from the hands of the angel. Do you remember the scene around the throne, the elders, no one can break the seal, no one can be there, people are weeping, no one can break the seal, no one can do this, only Jesus can do this. Now we get a picture of John, one of us, an image bearer of God, going up to the angel and taking the word of God from him. Now I don't, this is all just me making stuff up, but I think there's something kind of cool here where it says, I took the little scroll from the hand from the angel. I went to the angel and told him to give me it. Give me the little scroll. So you, like, think of John cowering in chapter 1, questioning, like, not knowing what's happening in 2, looking at the churches. We have God speaking with a voice. Hey, don't write down the seven thunders. And then God says, get the scroll. And then like the swagger of John to go up and go, um, I'm going to take that now. Right? grabs the word of God, but it comes from the encouragement of God himself. The voice booms and says, get it, take it, go, spread it, right? That we have, as image bearers of God, we are not angels. And so we have the authority given to us by God, and John in this moment gets the word of God from this angel. This is a messenger. And then John is given as an image bearer of God a a call in his life to teach the word. Not to angels, but to us, to you and to me. The call in our lives to be people of the truth, people of the book, people of the Bible, that's on us. That's not on the angels. It's on us. That's highly significant for what we're about to see. He then says, this thing is going to be sweet as honey, but it's also going to be bitter in your stomach. I don't know if this is one of those like Food Network kind of things where you layer the spices so it's sweet in the palate and then it gives you a stomachache. I don't get that. I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, I think what's happening is the consistent teaching we see throughout the Bible when we give, um, we are given pictures of the beauty of God's word and how it sustains us and keeps us um, from the very beginning uh, into this moment here. We know that there is a Jewish tradition where as young boys were learning about the word of God in synagogue, then as they did well, they were given honey so that they would make connotations of the sweet taste of... It's like us giving Tootsie Rolls or Jolly Ranchers or whatever to children and youth or whatever. Like now it's like if it's youth, it's like, yeah, pizza, oh, the word of God, yeah, I love it. It's something like that. Or we do stuff with kids, we do things, 
And so what would happen is in teaching, because in a land where there isn't sugar everywhere, or chocolate bars or ready access to high fructose corn syrup, honey was the only really sweet thing you had to flavor things. And so you made these connections that the word of God is sweet like honey. So you see it throughout. And in, in other parts of the Bible, too, I've made a note of a few, so I wouldn't have to bounce everywhere. Um, we see images of it being honey, of it being better than bread when Jesus is in the desert, um, better than meat in First Corinthians. And we see even Peter saying that pure spiritual milk comes from the word of God. And we see the teaching that eventually you shouldn't be, be feasting on milk. You need to crave the meat, like you need to grow in your faith. So there's all these food connotations to the Word of God. And so that theme has continued throughout all of Scripture into this moment. That the Word of God is sweet like honey. Grace, the gospel, the good news, the love of God. All the things we know to be true. But it also can have a bitterness to the stomach. Because as you grow to know the Word of God, you begin to know yourself. As you read the Word of God, the Word of God reads you. And you start to be made more aware of your failings and your flaws and the things that dishonor God. And you start to feel the pain of that. The conviction of the Holy Spirit can be bitter in the stomach. It can also be that as you begin to read the Word of God and you know the Word of God and you grow in faith in the Word of God, you see that there's really only two options for the end of anybody's life. An eternity with God and an eternity separated from Him. And that can be bitter in the stomach. As you grow in your faith and you grow in the love of God, you, then you begin to see the people around you that are far from God as people that are not going to be there in eternity with you. And so that truth of the word of God that we hold in our hands and John's grabbing from this angel in this little scroll creates great joy, great happiness, a beautiful delight for those who know him. But can also create a bitterness in our guts because it's like a, it's a gut check. It's a literal gut check that people around us who don't know the Lord aren't going to be in eternity with us. But it's also a gut check to the stuff that we deal with, the sins we still struggle with. We don't, we don't like it. We don't like that we still struggle with them. And so as you read the word and you see how life is supposed to be lived, it can cause some pain. And this angel knows it. So the angel gives this scroll that's taken from John, and then there's the admonition. Take it, eat it, ingest it, dwell on it, live on it. Like we should desire to be students of the word, lovers of the word, enjoy interacting with the word, growing closer to God through the word, but it can create a bitterness. He ends with this verse. Verse 11. This is the call in our lives after we've ingested the word, we grow to love the word. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You must take this word to the ends of the earth. Just as the angel stood with one foot in heaven, or sorry, one foot on land and one foot on the sea, we got to take this word out to the people, out to people all around us. Now, we live in a day where we have access to the Bible in a million different ways. If you download the Bible app, that the Version Bible app that the, the Hobby Lobby people have essentially funded since it began, um, through the church they attended in Oklahoma, they kind of started this thing when when smartphones happened. Um, and they have, uh, I know a guy, he's, he's worked in their finance department, and in the office at Hobby Lobby, they have how many, they keep a running plaque going how many million downloads, how many times the Bible's been read through their app. And then they have another plaque of how many people they believe have been saved through their factories in China 
and in their stores and through the Bible app. How many people? So like the, the heartbeat of that whole company is for the word of God to be known. They're the ones that funded the Bible museum that's in Washington, D.C. I mean, they their family plan is for the word of God to be known. And because of them, you have on any of your smart devices or a computer access to a multitude of translations. When I taught in Nepal a few years ago, um, a student had her Android iPad thing, and she had the English version open and the Nepalese, Nepali translation of the Bible side by side. And as I'm working through a translator trying to teach this group of people, she's over there reading English, and I'm like, that's crazy that we have access and a free download for the whole world to have. Everybody's got smartphones. You can pick the translation, and you can go for it. It's pretty amazing the time we live in. But in that same time, because of access to information, what Paul tells Timothy has become more apparent, what he tells him in 2 Timothy, that in the, there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. In this day and age, you can find somebody with a blog, a YouTube channel, <clears throat> a church, physical or internet base that will back up anything that you want to believe about God in the Bible. You pick, pick the sin that you struggle with that can cause a bitterness in your stomach, and you Google uh, whatever. I don't know. Uh, does the Bible allow for multiple wives? Boom. Now, I'm not saying I struggle and I have multiple wives. I'm not saying that. But let's just pick one that we would all go, that's ridiculous. That's not acceptable. You will find, I bet, in the top five hits, you're going to find somebody that says, yes, it's okay, and you can go do that. Can I disobey the government as a total and not do? A couple clicks, boom, yes, you can. You pick the sin, the issue. You'll find someone out there to back it up. And I've seen it happen. People have come to me over the years and said, you know, I know the Bible says this, but I found this guy online, and he wrote this book. And like, You do know with the power of Amazon today, any of you can write a book and put it on the Amazon Marketplace. And they print them individually. So you can say, I'm a published author. No, you're not. Like, you didn't go through a process and have a screening. You just have a book on Amazon. That's not really that big of a deal anymore. You can do it yourself. Publish it over at FedEx. They'll bind it for you. I'm a published author. Not that big of a deal. You'll find someone to back up everything that you want in your heart. And that's, that's the danger of the day we live where we can find... Before, if you, if you had to, were looking for a pastor to back up your sin or back up the thing you struggle with, you'd have to go to another town, find another church, maybe go to a different country. That's a lot of travel just to find someone to say that you, what you believe is right, even though you're wrong. Now you're an internet search away. You're an internet search away from it. And the world is still looking for something to believe in. A few years ago when the first Thor movie came out, between... Thor movie and the Vikings series on the History Channel, there has been an increase in Nordic myth following in Scandinavian countries. These Finland, Sweden, Norway, and we can throw Iceland in there as well. Um, if you look at the flags of all these nations, they have a cross on them. As their countries grew and kind of got out of the Viking era, they became places of faith, became places, pinnacles of faith. And then as secularism has grown and they've walked away from that, the countries have nothing to believe in. Churches are becoming breweries and all kinds of other stuff. There's just the gospel is not being proclaimed there. There's not a cultural understanding of the Bible anymore. And so then people feel lost. And they're 
straying and they're wondering and they're trying to find something to believe in. And then you have the Vikings show comes out and then you have Thor and especially Thor. You have a superhero show up and now there's literal places where you can go and have runestones read. Um, they'll throw the runestones out and they're believing in, they're back in Nordic mythology. There's a movement of people that follow Thor and Odin and all this stuff. When, with the absence of truth, the absence of the gospel, people are still going to cling to stuff. And we see Paul warn Timothy almost 2,000 years ago that during there's going to come a day when you're going to turn from everything and follow myth. And we're seeing it happen in our our nation here. We're seeing it happen around the world. It's not just an American issue. It's all over the world. That for 1,800, 1,900 years, the Bible was seen as the word of God. There's been fringes and breaks, and I'm not saying that, that that didn't happen. It happened. But in the last 50, 60, 70 years, it's now become what? People believed that for 16, 1700 years. Well, that's just because they were all collectively morons. But because I live in 2020 and I have access to Wikipedia, I'm smarter than all of them. They didn't know what they know. They didn't know culture. They didn't understand things. They didn't really know what was going on. They didn't understand biology or science. Or like, Give me a break. You know how arrogant that is? We have a unique situation on our planet right now, the last 60, 70 years, where we look at people who've gone before us and see them all as idiots and we're the smartest people ever been born. It's a very unique cultural phenomena of the, of the life of humanity on the planet. There's always been a passing down of knowledge from generation to generation, maybe perfecting, maybe looking at things differently. It's always exist, existed. We see it in Titus uh, chapter 2. We see a consistent push in the church for older people to teach younger people and to continue this on. But now we have a couple people that are call themselves scholars, call themselves, they get a couple book deals, have a blog, get a YouTube channel. I'm like, well, I can't. The Bible has stood on this truth for almost 2,000 years, but this guy five years ago, he came across a writing on a cave, so everything has to be changed. Really? We don't do that with anything else. We do that with nothing else in society. No one's going back to the Model T hand crank engine. It lasted way longer, had way, had way looser tolerances. The, the engines never failed. You had to put a quart of oil in it every time you filled it up with gas, but they ran forever. And I don't see anyone advocating for all of us getting rid of our electric start, going outside, and cranking it and adding oil every time we get gas. We built upon the truth. We don't wipe it away. We don't get rid of it. We build upon it. And instead, we see these things happen across our culture. What's happened in the past is stupid. We're going to do this now. So the call in our lives is to see this as a book of truth. Rock solid, legs of pillars of fire, truth. That if we don't understand it, we don't go seeking information from some random website because somebody has a title of their name the back of their name or beginning or wherever you put your titles. Instead, I'm going to spend my time reading the very word of God that God wrote, and I'm going to try to dig in deep and find friends who can help me with it. What would happen if the stuff you struggle with in the Bible, the stuff you don't understand, stuff you don't like, you just spent time reading the Bible and asking God to reveal it to you instead of finding the three or four books at Barnes and Noble to prove that your idea is right and the Bible's wrong. I don't think you can come away. If you read this book 
from beginning to end, or just just read the Gospels, I don't think you're going to come away saying, God hates you, God doesn't love you. You're going to find a clear message of love, hope, and care from God. You continue into the epistles, how the church should be organized, how things should be done. You're not going to find a place of uncaring. You're going to find a place of supreme love, supreme care in the very word of God. Do you spend time with this love letter that's been written? He'll reveal things to you. He's not going to give it all to you. We just talked about that. But he will reveal things to you if you put in the effort to do so. So I wanted to share a couple things. I get asked these questions a lot. Like, how do I read the Bible? And I'm going to give you a two-minute, because it's right at noon, and the kids are getting restless, um, a brief how to use a basic hermeneutical, which means how to read the Bible, um, process. So if you're studying the Bible, you start first with the passage you're reading. Obviously, you just read it. Pretty basic. You then go to the immediate context of what's happening in and around that passage. Like, what we're, what's the location? What's happening? What are we doing here? That's why you can read chapter 10. Like, how do you figure out that Revelation chapter 10 is an interlude? Well, it went from all this destruction to no more destruction and it picks back up. So this is an interlude. There's something special about this. So we look at the context around it. We then look at the larger section of that chapter, whatever you're reading. So you start with the passage you're reading. I don't understand this. So you expand your lens a little more. You say, well, what's contextually what's going on? What's, is, what's happening? How's this working? Then you expand it a little farther and you go to the larger section. It doesn't have to be the whole book, but maybe a couple chapters. Then we look at the whole book. Like, what's the purpose of the book? So when I read in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus say that if you, it's not enough to say, don't murder your neighbor. Because if you have anger in your heart towards that person, it's as if you murdered them, paraphrasing. So I'm reading this going, so you mean to tell me that if I'm just mad at someone, that's just as bad as actually killing them? Really? I don't think that's really what's going on here, Jesus. So then if I look at that passage and I go a little bit bigger, the whole Sermon on the Mount, really the culminating issue is the heart. He's talking about the heart. He's talking about that even though on the outward appearance you look all great, it matters what's going on in your heart. Then I look at the rest of the chapter. Then I look at the rest of the book. Then I get to the whole book and I see the point of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is for us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is God in flesh. The miracles, the teachings, everything is to point us to the singular truth that Jesus is Messiah. So how does that issue of murder, well, you need a savior. You can't stop being angry at people. And if you're angry at people and it's just as bad as murdering them, then how do I, how am I free from that? I can't, you need saving by a Messiah. Puts the whole thing in perspective. But you've got to think bigger. And then we go to the whole Bible, which gets even a little trickier um, when you get to the rest of the Bible because then people will pick and choose verses. I think this. I think this. I do this. This is the one I love. This is, this is my personal favorite. And they proof text. They pull text out and they say, this is, this is my truth. Well, you've got to look at it in context. Look at the whole Bible. Is that really what's going on there? Is that really what's happening? Um, does, does, from Revelation to Genesis, is this the story? 
Because if it doesn't make sense with the rest of the Bible, you're probably off. So we look at what Paul says through Romans, that, that you do not earn your salvation, you do not earn um, favor with God, it's a free gift of grace from the cross. Then you read in James where he says, faith without works is dead. That leads me to go, man, so i got to work here to earn this? No. You, you put James in context, you put Paul and James together in context, and you look at the whole Bible. And you would come to the conclusion, no, James isn't teaching, you've got to earn your salvation, you've got to work for this. What he's saying is that work, effort, um, fruit of your faith is going to come out if you have a faith in Christ. So he says, faith without works is dead. He's saying that your, natural, your faith, your growth in Christ should lead to some fruit. But if you just read the one verse, like, oh, I've got to get to work, you've got to earn this thing. But if I put it in the entire context, it makes more sense. Does that make sense? That was a really fast two-minute way of trying to give you a hermeneutics class. Uh, Matt has actually written a book on this, so if you would like to talk to him, he is a published author who actually was approved by a group. He didn't just put it on, on Amazon. Uh, you can talk to Matt. He's got a great book on it. Okay, so lastly, um, I was going to show you a couple other things, but I wanted to kind of iron this out. Um, people ask me all the time what translation of the Bible to get. If I'm calling you to read your Bible, which version should you go after? And there's a multitude of versions out there, and I've, this is how I've chosen to label them, more formal and more functional. What that means is, is the farther you get over here, these are considered word-for-word -word translations. What you see in Hebrew and what you see in Greek will be translated into English word-for-word. Word. What you have in your hand is as close as we can get to translation the exact words of God as they are written in their original language. As you go all the way to the right, you get what we call more functional where the translation is done for you, and it's kind of thought by thought, helping you understand. So like the message at the very end, um, I personally really like the message. I like how it reads. It's a paraphrase. It is not a direct translation of the Word of God, not even close. However, Eugene Peterson was no slouch of a biblical scholar, and a lot of things he does in Greek in the message, um, I think he gets it more right than what the ESV translators did that I I've prefer the ESV as my, the Bible of choice for myself. But so what, what this is, this is the Word of God given to you as a direct translation. And as you keep going to the right, the translators, the authors start doing some thinking for you. This leaves it up to you. This is the Word of God. You do the thinking. And as you go closer to the functional, they're doing some of the thinking for you. Doesn't mean they're bad. I, when I was saved, the first translation I ever read was the New International Version. But the New International Version, which is what's under most of your seats, it's a great translation of the Bible, but it does some of the thinking for you. It's why it's a little easier to read. Um, sometimes over here, they're a little harder to read because you have to do the thinking for yourself. But that's the beauty of that Bible app I mentioned. You get them all for free. So just read the Bible. So the ones I recommend um, more often than not would be the ESV. It's what you see every week from me. I like the Holman Contemporary Study Bible. It's close to the ESV. Um, what I like about it is that everything in the New Testament that's a quote from the Old Testament is in bold. So as you read the Holman Contemporary Study Bible, you will see, which I think they changed the name again, but anyway, what is it? CSB, so just Contemporary Study Bible, Christian Standard. I like that one. I wish I'd get them to talk to the ESV people and kind of steal from each other a little bit, um, but whatever. You have them both on your phone, use it. 
If you're looking for the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's the one to go for. It's, I love it. Okay? Now, then you move down to the NIV, which is what most of us, uh, a lot of people have, have had access to. Um, the NIV, but I, there are parts of it that I dislike because it does some of the thinking for me. But there's times I don't want to think. So I just want to read. Um, and that's where I tend to lean on the message. Um, if, you, if someone is a poetic, an artist, they're creative, they're not just a linear thinker, if you hand them a copy of the message, they are going to fall in love with God's Word. It is poetry that is sweet and beautiful. And, I, and when I'm stuck, it's like the heartbeat of a passage in the ESV, then I'll go grab the message and I can feel the heartbeat of it a little bit. Um, it's not the one I prefer to study through because I... I tend to be a word-for-word, linear kind of guy, and I want to make sure I got it down. So I hang out in ESV mostly, but I have them all. And to close, if we're called by John, we're called, the angel gives a message to John through God that we are to teach the word, preach the word, fall in love with the word. You have to spend time in it. You have to spend time in it. Um, It starts off as duty. It starts off as, I'm just getting it done. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to read through the Bible and read through the Bible. I'm supposed to do it. Got to do it. Got to do it. And it doesn't have that joy to it. You're just getting through the list. You're going to do it. This is what you're supposed to do. Go to this church to talk about Jesus. I'm proud to read about him, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Then it becomes discipline. Where it's not begrudging. I don't really know. I'm confused. I don't get it. It becomes a discipline. Like brushing your teeth. Those of you that I assume brush your teeth. Um, not everybody loves brushing their teeth like some members of my family. Some people really enjoy it. It's a joy. They love to have clean teeth, and they brush their teeth, and it's like, you know, place of happiness. For me, I just do it so I don't offend you when I talk to you. I really don't care. Sometimes they feel gross, so I do it. It's more about the texture upon my teeth. I want that off, and about the breath that comes out that would offend you. But I'm not like, yes, I'm brushing my teeth. But every morning, I brush my teeth. Every single morning, I brush my teeth. It's a discipline. So it goes from duty, I better do this, because my wife is a dental hygienist, and she's going to think I'm gross, so I'm going to do it, to a discipline. I'm doing it. I'm getting it done. I brush my teeth every day. I talk to people all day. Probably shouldn't have halitosis, even though that's a made-up marketing word. That's a whole other sermon. Okay? And then it becomes a delight. It becomes a delight. As I've gotten a little older, um, and I've been around people who have had to get some false teeth, and have had to, like, I'm like, I want to keep my teeth. I want to keep them things for a while. I don't want them to go away. I think it's kind of important. So now it's kind of a delight to brush my teeth when I, that's not at all, I'm lying. (laughs) The Word of God can become a delight. To where when you finally have 20 minutes of alone time, 30 minutes of alone time, there's nothing going on, and you can open up the Word of God, and His Spirit speaks to you through the words of God that He's given you. It changes everything. And that's my hope for you. But as John is given a command by God through an angel, gets the Word of God, and says, proclaim this, preach this, teach this, that you and I would grow to a place of great joy and delight in the Word of God so that we would freely teach it to others. But you've got to get through the phases so you can finally delight it. So when you see this little scroll as ultimately important, worthy of your time, so that 
others would learn from you that same worthiness so that they would not be an eternity separated from God. It's not just about knowledge. It's about us sharing that truth with others.